Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. iTrust is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at HighTrustAlliance.net. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Here we are. This is Sean Martin with ITSP Magazine, and you are very welcome to a new Redefining Security episode. And this episode is touching on technology that I always found interesting, and it's combining an author, an analyst, an instructor with an associate assistant professor and a student. And we're going to look at this topic of honeypots and intrusion detection to help businesses protect themselves, help uh, criminal justice folks uh, do their job, and everything in between. So, uh, I mean, this is going to be a cool conversation. Very seldom that we get uh, this this kind of group together. And I'm uh, thrilled to have Chris Sanders on, Jordan Howell on, and Will Palafox. Thanks, guys, for uh, being part of this. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to a shot. Yep. And uh, this was inspired by as many of of uh the, the episodes that i pulled together on my own uh inspired by a tweet or some some kind of post and uh the, the post was around a book being used in university to help uh help students understand the concept of intrusion detection and security practices and uh we're going to get into that in detail but before we do uh i'd like to everybody to kind of take a moment to introduce themselves, what you're up to. And uh, Jordan, we'll start with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Sean. So I'm going to start with a bit of my background. If that's all right. Um, first, as you mentioned, my name is Jordan Howell and I'm assistant professor at the University of Texas at El Paso. Um, I recently finished my PhD in criminology from the University of South Florida, but I dual enrolled in the digital forensics graduate certificate program. So I really wanted to understand you know, both the social and the technical components that are inherent within cybercrime and cybersecurity related issues. Um, you know, before graduating with my PhD, you know, I was recruited for what was meant to be a postdoc position to develop the evidence-based cybersecurity research group, which is housed out of Georgia State University. You know, we work closely with, you know, industry leaders, law enforcement agencies, and, you know, myriad financial institutions, which I'll talk more about. But when I was recruited for the position, it was Hey, you know, you want to come down, you know, help me launch this lab, you know, be the postdoc, right? Really help develop it. 
And I was like, well, that sounds fantastic, but I still have three years before graduating. So I was in this really cool, unique position to where I was in Georgia State, you know, developing this lab, you know, as a postdoc or as we jokingly called it, a pre-doc, you know, while also continuing my studies in digital forensics and criminology. Um, so that, I think that's a really good introduction to me. And I think it's going to really highlight the intersectionality and the way that I approach cybercrime and cybersecurity related issues, not solely looking at the technical or human component, but trying to look at both and answer social scientific questions, you know, using, you know, advanced computer science techniques. Yeah. Appreciate that. And I uh, already a million questions in my head, uh, from what you just said, even, uh, but we're going to, we're going to hold for a moment. Chris Sanders. All right. Well, thank you all for having me. My name is uh, Chris Sanders. My background is mostly in security investigation related work uh, that spans quite a few industries. I spent some time with the Department of Defense building and leading security operations centers, training analysts and doing research within those environments. In the uh, private sector, I worked for in Guardians and then for Mandiant for a while, um, leading one of Mandiant's uh, detection engineering teams and doing some research there. And about five years ago, I left to venture out on my own and launch Applied Network Defense which is a business, a training company I run. We're focused on affordable, accessible information security uh, practitioner training, uh, mostly on the, the blue team, the defensive and investigative side where my experience lies, although we have a couple of other offerings there as well. Um, along with that, I run an organization called the Rural Technology Fund. We're a nonprofit that's focused on giving kids in rural areas the things they need to have success in computer-related fields and, and be introduced to those fields and know that there's some opportunity that um, is there for them. Um, we've been around since about 2008. We put technology resources into the hands of about 150,000 kids in all 50 states, and uh, a lot of great things uh, continue to be going, new things going on there um, as well. Um, aside from that, uh, my career is mostly that of a practitioner, although a few years ago I went back um, to get my doctorate in education, which I finished somewhat recently from Baylor. Um, I did that with a focus on the intersection between digital forensics, uh, cognitive psychology and education, particularly trying to understand how analysts do the things they do, the cognitive tasks and behaviors they exhibit that makes them good at what they do so we can better teach those to aspiring practitioners. So that's me in a nutshell. You in a nutshell, and, and uh, uh, you've seen some things. <laughs> I've, I've seen some things, and I've, I've written about the ones that I could. <laughs> That's right, and uh, perhaps we'll touch on a few of those. And, and speaking of writing, uh, you're the author of the book uh, that we're going to be discussing today as well, right? Yeah, I guess that's probably worth mentioning. I've written a, a few books along the way. One is the one we're talking about, um, which is my, my most recent, Intrusion Detection Honeypots, Detection Through Deception. Uh, I'm also the author of Applied Network Security Monitoring and Practical Packing Analysis. Love it. And uh, Will Palafox, you, you're the beneficiary of, beneficiary of these two guys' uh, brains <laughs> as you, yeah, as you, uh, as you take like the course, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, I'll keep this short. Uh, yeah, my, my name's Will. Uh, I, uh, I have an undergraduate in psychology, which I got at a small university outside of Dallas. Uh, since then, I worked in tech support out in Austin, Texas for a few years, uh, where I got to uh, uh, practice my soft skills that I learned in psychology. And obviously, I learned picked up some hard skills as well, working with various software products. Uh, from there, I decided to go back into school at UTEP uh, in El Paso, Texas, is where I'm from. Originally, where I'm studying uh, software engineering, uh, I'm really and you know from my experiences in tech support psychology, I'm really interested at the intersection 
uh, of uh, human behavior and uh, and computer science. Uh, so I, I'm like, so that's like kind of central to my career trajectory. I'm not sure exactly where I want to go, but I keep those uh, ideas in mind. But whatever decision I do, which is how I ended, ended up working uh, with uh, Professor Jordan Howell here. I thought his project uh, in the cybersecurity team was really uh, an intriguing opportunity, and um, it, I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, if I can just add to that really quickly, Sean, you know, Will has a tendency to oversell or undersell himself. You know, Will's the best student I've ever worked with, right? Um, we have an army of computer science students and, you know, they're very talented students, very technical. But Will, given his background in psychology and then the hard skills and the computer science skills he's developed through, you know, working in IT and then you're know, pursuing his graduate degree. You know, he really approaches, you know, cybersecurity with a different mindset and you know, he really does embody the evidence based approach. So, if, you know, there's employers listening to this. They'll be on the market relatively soon. Yeah, very cool. And uh, it's easy to get caught up in the tech and and forget that there are people behind these things, right? And yeah, and I, I'm I'm just thinking all the way back into the book, even where I presume a lot of this looks at behavior and and not just what they're going after or how they reach it, but perhaps even the, the trail they leave as they, as they approach the, the targets they're after, or even if they're not targeting them, they, they still arrive at them. So Jordan, I, you mentioned evidence-based. Uh, I mean, we're talking about practical uh, application of security practices, looking inside the mind of the attacker. And, and obviously we have to look at the analysts and how they think as well to help perhaps train them to, to think and act differently. So tell me a little bit about the program you're working on and then and then perhaps a connection to the book, and then we'll, we'll pass the ball to Chris to give us an overview of, of the book and, and how it came to be. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you noticed, Sean, when you said too many people get caught up on the technical aspect. Um, and the technical aspect is very important, right? You couldn't have cybercrime or cybersecurity without the technical aspect. But, you know, the term cybersecurity really originated in the late 80s, you know, early 90s. And from an early onset, everyone approached cybersecurity with, you know, let's build our way into a more secure cyberspace. So what we saw was um, a cartoonish like version of, you know, Tom and Jerry, right? We build, they exploit. It goes on and on and on. Cybercrime incidents increase annually and the net loss to, you know, individuals, organizations and, you know, um, the global economy has also skyrocketed, right? So in recent years, you know, scholars in you know, sociology and other fields have um, almost in radical contrast to cybersecurity through technology created what's called the human factor in cybercrime, wanting to understand human behavior and really better understand the modus operandi of those behind the keyboard. But what happened is you saw the pendulum swing almost entirely in the opposite direction. So these sociologists who initially said, hey, we need to understand human behavior forgot about the technical components of cybercrime. And I believe you can't study cybercrime and cybersecurity issues without understanding human behavior, but to only study human behavior and forget about technology, um, we're in the same issue, just opposite. We have the same issue, just um, opposite, right? So our group um, attempts to intersect and you know bridge these two related, yet for some reason, distinctly different disciplines, right? So what we want to do is we want to understand cyber cybercrime and cybersecurity issues by looking at both human behavior through technological means. And we do that in various ways. And one of the ways is through the deployment of honeypots. 
you know, so Chris talks about in his book, which is a fantastic read, by the way. So if you haven't had a chance to pick up a copy, I highly recommend doing so. Um, it's mandated to all my students and they all really enjoy it. No one's regretted it yet. But, you know, Chris talks about in his book, there's two primary types of honeypots. You know, there are research honeypots and then there are um, intrusion detection honeypots. You know, I like to think that we have created, you know, through the evidence-based approach, um, a third typology, if you will. Um, so in a way, we're launching research honeypots, right, to better understand human behavior. But unlike most scholars who have attempted to use honeypots to understand, you know, new and varying attack vectors, we want to understand how different types of honeypots can alter human behavior. So what we do is we use honeypots to launch various experiments. So instead of launching a honeypot in the wild and just seeing, you know, what type of attacks are launched against the honeypot, we'll vary the configurations. We'll make some honeypots more secure than others. We'll change the content of a website, for example, and see who's more likely to attack the website and how the attack um, changes based on the content. Um, you know, we'll even post advertisements on various um, um, sites such as, you know, um, eBay or Craigslist, and we'll price them, you know, way over market value where the only person that's going to, you know, actually interact with these products are evident fraudsters. And then, you know, we monitor their behavior and then we can see, you know, how we can nudge these individuals to behave differently while interacting with our honeypot, irrespective of what that honeypot looks like, you know, whether it be a website, a computer system, or whether it be a simple advertisement trying to, you know, see what a fraudster, or yeah, to understand, you know, uh, the, for the fraudster's modus operandi, which I think might be a good segue to talk a bit more about Chris's uh, book, if you agree, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a bit of background, if you would, Chris, because, and maybe a definition of a honeypot for those who may not be familiar with it. You, you described two models. Um, my experience with them is limited. Um, and it, it, it's mainly business oriented where you're setting something as a target to see if you've been popped. <laughs> That's kind of the limit of my, of my understanding of the honeypots. But they can be so much more. And you, you mentioned, Jordan, putting advertisements on eBay. I'm, I presume for really expensive sneakers to see. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what you're doing there. But maybe, Chris, what, what's the breadth and depth of a honeypot? What's possible? What are they used for? And then a drive into why you wrote the book. Sure. So a broad definition of a honeypot that I would use is really any type of resource that is designed to be probed or attacked or otherwise interacted with that only serves a security purpose. So when I say resource, that's specific terminology, it, it can mean a system. So it can mean a, a system that you've set up out there on your network or on the internet that has no production value that is, you know, you're monitoring heavily that you want someone to interact with. So you can, you know, analyze that, or maybe you don't want someone to interact with it, but you want to know when they did because it indicates maybe someone compromised your network. So it could be a system, uh, but it doesn't have to be a system. It can simply be a service running on a system. It could also be data. So it could be a file, for instance, like a word document that has a functionality built into it to phone home when it is opened. The idea being that if someone browses to that and accesses it who shouldn't, then that can alert the people who can investigate it. So it's really anything. It can even be credentials, a username and password that are fake. And when those get used, monitoring for that could be of value. So could it be honeypot, an API? It, it can be almost really anything, right? Anything can be a honeypot. And once you get to this kind of uh, mental framework of thinking about anything being a honeypot, thinking in terms of deception, 
um, it kind of changes the game a little bit in terms of just how you view the network and, you know, kind of what buttons you have to press and what knobs you have to turn in terms of not just research, but detecting bad guys on the network and intruding in places that they shouldn't be. Um, you know, when I wrote the book, I wrote a backtrack a little bit. I wrote a book in 2013 called um, Applied Network Security Monitoring, which is really focused on all forms of detection and investigation and things like that. Um, in that book, I wrote a chapter dedicated to honeypots, and it was fairly high level, but it was really introducing this concept that you could use honeypots for detection, and it was a really high efficacy form of, uh, of detection, because generally speaking, they're fairly easy to set up, and the false positives are very, very low with a minimal amount of tuning. And this is quite a bit different than something like signature or anomaly-based detection, where you usually have to deal with a whole lot of false positives. Now, when I wrote that in 2013, this is something I'd been using a little bit and I'd seen maybe just a couple other people using honeypots for detection in this way. It wasn't very widespread. There wasn't a lot of tooling available for it. There were not just a ton of techniques available. Um, but I knew at that point I wanted to eventually write a book on honeypots for detection at some point once, you know, everyone I thought was kind of ready for it and it was a little bit better supported. Um, that happened. Um, and I wrote that book, uh, and it came out last year and that's what we're talking about today. The intrusion detection honeypots book. And the way I position that is, you know, honeypots are not a new concept. They've been around as an idea since the late eighties. And then we go back to the history of Cliff Stoll using a honeypot in his book, the cuckoo's egg to uh, keep an attacker on the line. So someone could physically be in a phone closet, uh, tracing a connection to find them. Um, and then that's kind of the first one, but you know, the purpose of this book was first of all, Let's give a, a brief history of, of honeypots and how they've been used, starting with Clistol. Then let's separate out this, this notion of research versus kind of production or, in my case, detection honeypots. And then let's clearly define what a detection honeypot is and give tangible examples of how it works in terms of changing behavior and how to actually deploy them on your network, um, kind of full life cycle from designing to deploying to configuring software to monitoring and investigating those alerts. So it was really designed to be kind of a, uh, a seminal book on the topic of using honeypots for detection and something that people could get start thinking deceptively, getting their mindset in the right place, but also actually tangibly taking it, going to their own network and deploying these things effectively, um, whether that's a really big network or a really small network or even individually on your own network. That was really the plan. And, and Will, Presume you do a lot of thinking, <laughs> given your background. So, well, how does this, how does the book and the course, perhaps change how you think about things, and then how have your your psychology background? How how does that get applied to the material that you're being presented with in the course and in the book? Well. That's a great question, Sean. Uh, so when I first started reading Chris's book, I, I was worried because there's a page that says where Chris assumes that uh, anyone reading the book has a networking background, and he cited s several books uh, that uh, he hoped that uh, the reader of this honeypot book would have read. But Chris also said that the, uh, you talk about how a honeypot is actually more of a concept than an exact like technical blueprint. And uh, so that got me thinking – Okay, so I, I have this specific set of skills, mostly in uh, a web application development. How could I build a, a honeypot that uses my web application skills and my psychology skills? Uh, so I, I got to thinking and um, I was able to develop like a prototype. I talked to Jordan about possibly using for, for research purposes where 
we would build uh, a form or a login page and uh, not, not, well, I kind of, kind of get, I got to get a little bit technical to explain this. Well, it, I would change the HTML layout of the labels for the, uh, for the login and for the password fields, for example, to uh, random uh, letters or numbers so that spammers or bots wouldn't be able to find the actual inputs. And then I would hide uh, other input fields with normal labels so that the, the spammers and bots would input the faulty data in there. And that would be effectively be my honeypot. And, uh, and where the psychology aspect of that would come into play is where we would change the content of the, uh, the login page. Like, what are we logging into? What kind of data are we accessing? What data are cyber criminals looking for? Like currently in, in 2021, like what's the most valuable? I, I guess uh, cryptocurrency, for example, uh, off the top of my head. Uh, so that, that that's what got me thinking. Um, uh, Chris like kind of presented this sandbox where there are virtually limitless possibilities to like what kinds of honeypots we can build, like the content. It's uh, it's a really exciting uh, and adventurous field. And Jordan, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to broaden the picture a little bit again to your program because. And maybe a little little background on that. It, it's cybercrime and forensics, right? Is it both of those? Yeah, that's a good way to put it, right? I wouldn't say cybercrime and forensics if I were to present what it is that I do, right? What I do is I approach cybercrime and cybersecurity issues, examining both the human and technical components of these issues, right? Recognizing that not only is there a technical component, but there's a human behind the keyboard, and to better understand the bigger picture, right, we need to take into consideration both of these um, very important factors. Because it, there's the part where you're, and I think Chris touched on it a little bit, uh, where you're, or maybe it was you, Jordan, where you're tracking the, the bad activity to hopefully find the person doing it. So one, to track the person and hopefully catch them, and then the forensic piece to perhaps prosecute. So how, how does the honeypot, and then, and then I would wrap that all into, well, you can use all of that to learn from and then apply better protection and detection uh, down the road for individuals and, and companies as well. So maybe touch on those, those few things. Yeah, so that's a really interesting and multifaceted question that I'm gonna have to break apart piece by piece. Um, so firstly, I want to say I'm not an investigator, right? I'm not law enforcement. I'm a researcher and a scientist, right? So when I conduct these studies, it's never to catch and prosecute the bad guy, right? It's to better understand the illicit cybercrime ecosystem enabling these types of behaviors. So that, that's a really, really important because you know I've developed rapport throughout my career with various hackers and you know administrators um, you know, on various dark web platforms I'm happy to talk more about later. But I kind of want to go in more about how I utilize network forensics for my research purposes and how that you know, pushes you know, criminological theory forward and also helps advance you know, computer science, the discipline of computer science, while also aiding in you know, law enforcement investigations. Um, so again, right, so when, when, what I do is I conduct, or I, uh, so actually let me, let me back up even further. So firstly, I really liked what Chris recently said um, I wrote this down, Chris, because I'm going to directly cite this in my next uh, manuscript using honeypots. You say anything can be a honeypot. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that quote, and I agree with that quote, right? I've been in some heated arguments with individuals on what does and doesn't constitute a honeypot. 
And, you know, I thought a lot about the history of honeypots as well. And, you know, we always give, um, we always, we always credit the honeypot creation to the 1980s, but I took an art history class recently for fun. I was just auditing. Right. And, you know, they presented, um, you know, an image of an ancient Egyptian tomb. And in that tomb was exactly what we're talking about, a honeypot system. So if someone who wanted to rob the tomb were able to break past the security protocols in place and actually get into the tomb, which was, again, highly guarded, then what they would do is they would try to trick the invader, the robber, into going down a path by making that path look more attractive than the actual path that leads to the gold and the riches, right? So then you know, the intruder goes down this hallway and his mere presence traps him in this location, right, where he's stuck for all of eternity. So if you think about it, the idea of honeypots and the idea of, you know, detection through deception is, you know, as ancient as, you know, the Egyptians themselves. Um, so I'm a huge fan of taking these, you know, antiquated concepts and these warlike tactics into computing and to better understand our adversaries or better understand, um, you know, those who have nefarious purposes online. And one of the projects that I'm going to talk about specifically, because Will kind of alluded to it earlier, is a project in which we're building various websites for the sole purpose of being defaced. Um, I'm not sure how familiar your listeners will be with the concept of website defacement, but essentially a website defacement is when a hacker or an individual, you know, compromises the website to change the original content with content of their own choosing. Now there's a website that's very popular. It's called zoneh.org and there's over a million websites, you know, defaced and reported to zoneh each year. Um, there's hundreds of thousands of users on this site. And essentially what happens when a hacker defaces and reports the, the attack, the Zone H admin then checks, they validate whether the attack is real or isn't real. And if it is in fact real, then the attack is archived on their website forever. Um, and again, you know, hundreds of, th hundreds of thousands of attackers and, you know, they all use different monikers. And unlike most hackers who want to hide their presence, you know, these individuals are doing it to build a reputation, build a rapport among the hacking community. So they use the same name across platforms for branding purposes. So another class I teach is an open source intelligence gathering uh, course. And essentially what my class and I did, you know, Will was a big part of this, is we started extracting information on these hackers from across various platforms to build these robust profiles to better understand who these individuals are. You know, we found them on Facebook. We found them on Twitter. We actually recently published a manuscript where we sent them um, messages to see if we could nudge them away from a life of crime. And it was effective, right? Um, us warning them of, you know, potential legal consequences actually re uh, reduced their activity by 50% the following week. And that was using a, a randomized controlled trial, right? So the results, of course, were causal. But, you know, after building these um, robust profiles of these threat actors, we wanted to better understand, you know, how the content of the website and how the security configurations of the website alter their attack frequency and then what they do once they're attacking the site. So now Will and I and, you know, using Chris's book as a guide is we're building various types of websites, right? We're varying the security uh, configurations. We're varying the content, right? One, one website may be, you know, an e-commerce site, whereas the other is promoting religious propaganda or political propaganda. And then we're going to find ways to actually incentivize hackers to attack these websites. We're going to reach out to them, essentially advertise the site on known platforms, right? So then we can attract certain attackers to attack certain websites. 
and then better understand how the attacker's profile personality changes their modus operandi once they're engaging with our honeypot system. Um, so that's, that's one of the directions that I want to take it, right? Because what I truly believe is that if we want to have a more effective cybersecurity policy and we want to build you know, a more robust cybersecurity infrastructure, then we need targeted proactive intervention strategies. You know, right now we're using these reactive approaches where, you know, a crime happens, we deal with it after the fact. It's costly and effective. And as I said earlier, you know, the cost of cybercrime is skyrocketing. So it's my belief, my group's belief, that these policies need to be more targeted, more proactive, and most importantly, evidence-based, right? We want to use robust experimental designs, um, incorporating, you know, honeypots to, you know, better understand what works and doesn't work. How can we nudge people into a life of conformity and away from crime? Yeah, and Chris, you, your perspective on the, the, the role of honeypots, um, I, I can see it in within a company, but Jordan just mentioned uh, using open source intelligence, so I can see, I don't know if it's uh, an organization that runs a, a group of honeypots to, to use it to share information. How do you see honeypots helping businesses and perhaps even nations uh, get a better handle on how and well, mainly how they're being uh, targeted and, and attacked. Sure. So I think, you know, we're, I think we're mostly talking about kind of research type honeypots here. And, and the ones I probably describe in my book are <clears throat> when I bracket those out are research honeypots for the purpose of understanding attacks themselves. Uh, and I think that's just different from what Jordan and Will are doing, which are using research honeypots to understand humans that are doing the attacks. Is it, 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 would you say I characterize that right, Jordan? Absolutely. That's the main difference. Okay. Right? We're not understanding new attack vectors. We're understanding human behavior once they're interacting with the system. Exactly. Good. Okay. So, and I think that's important because the thing I said in the book, and I, I would say elsewhere, is I think there's very little value to be had in using honeypox exclusively to understand attacks. Because generally speaking, that means you're placing a honeypot outside the firewall of the public internet and just let, you know making it vulnerable to things or just collecting network data and seeing what happens. And um, I would say, generally speaking, outside of a few specific use cases, I, I can basically tell you what's going to happen. You're going to see a lot of, of scanning of certain types. You're going to see different volumes of it based on different things. Right now, you're going to see a lot of scanning for this uh, log4j vulnerability that uh, you know came out over the weekend, and um, that's going to be the, the biggest thing, right? So that's all fairly predictable, and there are use cases for that in terms of tracking the proliferation of attacks and how quickly and widespread they are, tacking uh, or uh, monitoring for known attackers and how and when they start using these things and monitoring for variants of those things, which are is mostly going to be the domain of security companies, threat intelligence companies, um, and some you know government military folks like that. That's mostly where that's going to occur. Now, the other side of this, using honeypots as a research mechanism, um, I think is, is incredibly valuable. And, and ultimately, I mean, I think any technique which is you know ethically sound and helps produce results and provides a way to facilitate the nuance that is you know random control trial and having a control group and a test group and and, and subtly changing things and introducing nudges and providing a pathway to those i think that's you know more tools for the researchers toolbox and i think that's a good thing uh, I'm, a, I'm a researcher too i mean I, I my background is mostly as a practitioner but um, I went out and got a doctor because I wanted to learn more about research and do those things in my own domain. And while I'm focused mostly on the defender and their mindset, um, I think really anything, again, that is ethically sound and provides meaningful results and is accomplishable um, and uses technology to do that, I think is a great thing to have in the toolbox of any researcher. And so you said defender. So 
blue team in it there, Chris. Uh, how how does the honey pot help a blue team? So I think that's where we get back to this concept of detection. Um, and the idea is basically herein we're not tasting honey pots outside the network, we're putting them inside the network. So they're not just going to sit there and collect wave after wave of attack and, and blow up with all sorts of data. Ideally, they never alert at all. They never notify you of anything, right? Now, the whole premise behind a honeypot, particularly a de uh, detection-focused honeypot, is this notion that if you can control what the attacker sees, then and you can control what the attacker thinks, well, then you can control what the attacker does. So, you know, if you put a document out there that the attacker will see if they compromise a likely target, and you make them think it's a legitimate document, call it passwords.xlxs, and well, then you control what they, they do, and that is they're going to grab that document. They're going to open it right there or pull it back to their own system and then open it, not knowing that it is indeed a honeypot or a honey document in this case, and it's going to phone home, alert an analyst somewhere, uh, whether it's with that company or with an MSSP, and they're going to start that investigation, right? So generally speaking, the way you place these things, you're placing them in areas where normal users will not stumble across them, or if they do, that's very easy to correct or tune out or, or you know, stop that from happening again. And these things just never never do anything until they do. And that's when you believe either an attacker is on your network and they've gotten access to something important or a user has accidentally or maybe intentionally stumbled onto an area that they shouldn't be. And honestly, you want to know kind of about all of those things. So we're talking about a detection mechanism that is very high efficacy. It is incredibly low in terms of false positive. It's very low effort to stand up. And that makes it unique from signature and anomaly-based detection um, which are both perfectly good things. Signature-based detection is a core element of any network defense posture. It's an absolute necessity in most cases, but it is labor-intensive. It is time-consuming. It takes a lot of care and feeding. Intrusion detection honeypots generally don't. Um, you know, some initial setup work, but then they're out there, and they're they're mostly kind of out there, depending on the nature of it. There's maybe some updates or things that you would have to do, but they provide an immense amount of value from a detection standpoint, and in some cases, some an attribution standpoint too. And well, as it, as you're working on this uh, in the program with Jordan, I'm wondering are there any standout moments uh, where you've seen activity change a certain way after you manipulated your your environment to either nudge them or invite them or incentivize them to do certain things? I'm just wondering, anything stick out to you that that uh, you think our audience would be interested in hearing in terms of how you're applying what you're learning in this course. Um, thanks. Uh, thanks, Sean, for that question. So, yeah, so Jordan and my team, we, we talk a lot about, um, we, we talk a lot about what kind of content would really incentivize people to interact with our honeypots. Uh, it's like more, more of a team discussion. Uh, we, we do have uh, to deal with compliancy issues, and, and there are copyright issues as well. We can't build a honeypot for an Amazon login page, for example. Uh, that would get taken down pretty quickly. Uh, and there's also, uh, we, we considered using uh, UTEP uh, credentials, uh, the university we're operating from, but, but that's not compliant as well. Uh, I don't think that's second, even though we are a UTEP research team, we can't use the UTEP logo for uh, the, our nefarious purposes. For, I mean, it is for research. Uh, but uh, we, we've come to find that uh, we, we typically revolve the content around really generic uh, ideas. Uh, for example, we're using uh, package delivery uh, as like uh, one um, type of content where, where it's a very generic 
uh, package delivery service. It's, it's literally called package delivery. Uh, we've, we've seen some interaction with those that uh, where the hackers would uh, be able to access their orders for the users, for example. Uh, so we, we've been sticking with very generic terms uh, and uh, we're, we're still talking about exploring different types of uh, content, but uh, we're sticking to pretty boring, run-of-the-mill types of content for the time being. Well, I'll jump in there too. I'll say I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, one of the one of the interesting bits of feedback I get back from from the book and the course I built that's based on it is folks will say, you know, I thought this would be more technically advanced. And, you know, I think at first some of them are, are like, why didn't you go deeper? And I'm like, well, and I asked them, where would you like me to go with it? And they're like, well, you know, more complicated honeypots. And I'm like, well, that's kind of the point is, is they don't have to be complicated. They can be very simple. As a matter of fact, they generally should be as simple as possible and as simple as needed in order to accomplish an objective, right? I can build, you know, if I wanted to put an, um, you know, an SSH honeypot out there um, and I was going to build one from scratch, you know, well, you think about the attacker experience with legitimate SSH, they're going to get a username, password prompt, they're going to enter one, they're going to get a file system. And from that file system, they can uh, open files, they can browse it and they can run tools and install things and whatever. And I could certainly build something that would emulate all of those things. But the idea is, particularly for detection, if I'm placing it inside my network and nobody should ever talk to it, well, first of all, if anybody just scans the thing alone, right, scans it at all, that's, that's an alert-worthy event. I know that attacker is there. Now, there's a balance to be had in terms of, you know, that detection initial alerting and also capturing a little bit of data so you can learn about the attacker. So what I may want to do is, okay, well, I will build a username and password prompt. So they'll enter a username and password. Now it doesn't actually have to let them log in. I just want whatever username and password they're using because chances are it's something they've stolen from another system on my network where they've dumped credentials, right? So I don't have to give them a full file system. Now I can take that a step further and give them something where they can see something that looks like a file system. And maybe they'll try to download some tools off the internet, you know, use a wget or a curl command or something like that. And then I can see where those files are hosted to get a copy of them myself and do things like that. But I'm certainly not going to let them install software or do other operating system related tasks because, well, that's just more headache. It's more attack surface for me to manage and it's just not really necessary. So if I'm just concerned with pure detection, I can just you know stand the system up and have the port listening. If I want a little bit more information, username, login prompt, and maybe something where they can upload a file or something like that. But the idea here is I'm keeping it as simple as possible to accomplish whatever my specific goal is. And that's really kind of the research mantra too, right? Is whatever you're doing in your research, you wanna eliminate as many variables as possible and also, you, you don't want to do any work you don't have to do, right? You want to keep it simple. And the Honeypot concept gives you an opportunity or a way to do that. If I could expand upon that a bit, I, I agree completely, right? You want to utilize the most simplistic method to get the, um, the results that you desire, right? Anything above and beyond that creates noise that um, complicates the study, right? It complicates... Um, everything. Um, it creates issues with um, your analyses and, and, and other things as well. Uh, so first, I want, I want to note about what Will was just, just talking about. Uh, I want to say that we do have IRB approval for all of the studies that uh, we are operating out of UTEP, right? Because one of the questions I always get is like, is this ethical, right? You know, Chris, you brought up the, um, the word uh, ethics earlier, you know, yeah, I want to uh, any type of research that's ethical and allows you to answer these questions using technological technological means is good and well supported. Um, everything has been deemed as ethical. We're not harming anyone when we, you know, um, invite them into our system. But I want to expand upon you know what can you, can you quickly Jordan to, 
take that to the next level, how you have that discussion with your students. Because it's one thing to get approval and then move forward and another for the students to understand what that really means. Absolutely. So let me say one more thing and then I'll answer that question um, in its entirety. Yep. You know, we also try to create websites and then only allow specific individuals access to the website. So we know, look, if this website was accessed, it was by this individual, right? So a click on our website shows this individual was there. So we know, boom, he interacted with the honeypot. And then we can set up more complicated processes to understand what the individual is actually doing once on the site, right? Um, so that's important. I, I want to I want to make note of that because we also try to you know employ a more simplistic approach that allows us to answer a yes or no question: Did they interact? And then if so, what did they do? Where did they do it from? When did they do it? Um, and various other you know social scientific questions. But the question with ethics, it's a question I love having, right? Um, in fact, I was I was interviewing for a position one time and the dean of the university called my research malpractice, right? He's like, oh, I can't believe you're you know, tricking all of these individuals into doing these things and sending out deterrent messages. And he goes on this long rant. And my response to him was very simple. And it's the response that I give to all of my students. And it's a, a day one conversation. It's the fact that technology is ethically neutral. All of this is ethically neutral, right? It's not good, nor is it bad. It just, it is, right? It is. And we, we have this idea in academia that, oh, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't be teaching your students these skill sets, right? Maybe you shouldn't teach them how to, you know, scan for vulnerabilities within networks or create honeypots because these things can be used for nefarious purposes. You know, we do a lot of research where I teach people how to navigate the illicit online ecosystem and extract stolen identities. So sure, my students could absolutely do that and then use those stolen identities to buy pizza. That's possible, right? But the bad guys are already doing this, right? The bad guys, and I guess I should say, I don't believe in good or bad, right? I don't believe there's this false dichotomy between good people and bad people, right? I think we're all just people. Um, everyone makes choices, some better than others. But that being said, right, the bad guys, just for simplicity's sake, are already learning how to utilize these technologies for nefarious purposes. So if the good guys, for simplicity's sake, aren't learning the same strategies, techniques, and toolkits then what we have is what we have today in um, the cybersecurity ecosystem. We have information asymmetry. We have um, a security posture in which the bad guys know how to exploit systems and the good guys don't know the systems exist because people are too worried that, hey, maybe I shouldn't teach this because of these ethical concerns. But it's my very strong belief, right, that, again, technology is a neutral. And if we don't teach the good guys how to defend against what the bad guys are already doing, then we have no chance to reduce the number of cybercrime incidents and protect individuals, organizations, and nation states. I'll jump in there and add to that a little bit. You know, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a defender and just to apply this to a scenario, one of the scenarios I have to think about a lot as a defender is what actually constitutes a compromise in my network. Like how would I actually define that thing? Uh, because once that thing happens, that's when I know I have to spit up incident response processes and whatnot. And, and generally speaking, I would say that my network has been compromised when an attacker executes code or commands on a system, right? So it could be code they downloaded or commands on the system for whatever nefarious purpose. Now, I think the thing someone would then come to me to say is, okay, well, let's say that you have a document, like, like the scenario I posed earlier, where I have a document that I have configured a hidden image that the attacker can't see. And when that document's opened, it'll reach out and ping a web server that I'm monitoring so I will know that it has been opened and from where. So they would say, well, if an attacker downloads that to their system and runs it, have you not executed commands or code on their system because 
you know, it's going to, it's going to run this thing and go out and do it. And, you know, is that, have you then broken into their system? And, you know, there's a couple ways to approach this. I mean, certainly one of those is the legal one. And I'm not a lawyer, so, I, you know, I'm not going to give my legal advice, although I'll say I talked to many of them in writing this book and my research. Most of those would say that that is completely a non-issue in this case. Um, but I would also say the thing that is added extra to this, which is noted, particularly in terms of detection purposes, that document existed only in, in my network. The attacker went into my network, definitely ran commands or, or code on my system to steal that thing and brought it back to theirs and ran it. So it's this notion of, it's almost like you think of the notion of someone breaking into a bank and stealing the bills and they get outside the bank and it trips a sensor and the dye pack goes off and they're colored in blue dye, right? Like, you know, it, it's, it's very analogous to that sort of scenario, which, you know, and there's lots of precedent for those sorts of things that happen so long as you're not, you know, causing harm. There's a difference between that dye pack, you know, popping and, and putting blue dial over someone and it being an explosive, like an explosive device that harms them, right? Just like there's a difference between having a Word document that pings a, a web server out there on the internet and having a Word document that runs sort of some sort of malicious code that installs a backdoor on the attacker system, right? That I, I think would generally be over the line. And I think anybody with any reasonable ethical um, um, progression through, through what's going on would recognize that as such. So um, it is not always a very, you know, clear discussion of, uh, or it's not a very clear line always of where those ethics um, are in some cases to some people, but there's lots of precedent and examples that can be relayed to show what is kind of crossing that line, I believe. And Will, maybe as, as we uh, begin to wrap here, uh, your thoughts on that and how you plan for your future to leverage what you're learning in this course from, from the work you're doing. Do you have conversations with your peers in the class about how this can be applied ethically and where you might want to take it? Uh, so, yeah. So when, when I talk to students uh, in my class, uh, everybody has, uh, you know, varying backgrounds and everybody has like their own ideas about um, uh, how, how they want to, uh, build, deploy, or what kinds of honeypots they want to put out into the wild, uh, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, um, for me, uh, I'm just uh, I'm concerned with uh, taking it to, you know, uh, like, like Chris said, like not installing malicious software on anybody's computer, uh, key loggers or uh, backdoors that give uh, me, me uh, or the, uh, someone else like too much power over another user, because I think that's uh, fundamentally unethical. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, me personally, and I think most people would agree, like just tracking people, seeing whether they access the honeypot or not, and seeing what kind of content or commands they put into the honeypot, I think that's ethical, because you're, you're just uh, keeping tabs on how they interact with the honeypot, and uh, that, that's like the, what everything they're doing uh, Every way they interact with the honeypot, they know what they're doing. And so if they leave, they, they wouldn't be surprised if the computer self-destructs or something. I, you know, they, that, that, that would be uh, uh, unethical, I believe. But uh, yeah, for, for me personally, I'm interested in exploring uh, web application types of honeypots because that's more in my field. I don't have a networking background, although I am uh, highly interested in exploring it possibly in the future uh, after reading this book. Yeah, if I could add one final thought to that. So it sounds like the conversation we're having here is really about hackback, right? And whether 
hackback should be authorized or not and the ethics of that. I'm a fan, right? Um, maybe I'm a bit ethically liberal when it comes to what should and shouldn't be allowed. And I'm not discussing this as a lawyer, nor am I in any way trying to give legal advice. But I can say we talked to some prominent senators a while back, and no matter where we took the conversation, they all brought it back to this idea of hackback. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, I, I, I agree in a lot of ways, right? Because at the, at the end of the day, um, you know, they, you know, in Chris's example, they compromise Chris's system first, right? Um, as a result of that, you're able to, you know, install malicious code onto their computers. And I think that will allow us to essentially um, gain unrealized asymmetry, you know, previous unnamed asymmetry, right? We're going to be able to utilize tools and track these individuals and I think further improve our security posture. I think the conversation on like what can and can't we do to the bad guys is um, – a conversation that leaves us, you know, three steps behind when we're already, um, we're already falling behind in the, I don't want to say the war on cybersecurity because then it's going to be like the war on drugs type of analogy. Right. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is, you know, us trying to build a more secure cyberspace. And I think that we need to do that through all means possible. Um, and if hackback is a way to achieve that, I don't see it being an issue personally. And it's interesting. We ended up, <laughs> At this point in the conversation, I didn't didn't quite expect that, uh, and I don't know. I'm just picturing your uh, your Egyptian scenario, Jordan, where the the, the bad actor is is locked up <laughs> and uh, held there indefinitely, right? In your story, uh, I don't know what the cyber equivalent is there because there's no person actually entering, but uh, it's an interesting conversation. And I'm I will say this. I'm not going to take a position either way, but I will say I'm thankful that you're having that conversation with the students because uh, it's a conversation that needs to be had. Where, where, what are the lines to be drawn ethically and how do you know when you're crossing them? And I'm glad to hear that Will has that conversation with his peers in the class as well. Um, so it's not just from you, Jordan, and then off they go. <laughs> uh, it's really important. And, and Chris, uh, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, yeah. I, just, I, I think I do think it's worth noting. I mean, I think I agree. I think these are great conversations. I think they have to be had, uh, and I think they have to be had, particularly with new students in the field, right off the bat, very early, and that they should continue being had throughout. Um, I, I think there's a lot of steps between what I'm talking about in terms of a of an attacker stealing a document and opening it and pinging a web server, than this notion of full fledged hack back and. Um, having seen many scenarios where this has played out, uh, you know, my, my, the advice someone gave me a long time ago was never invite the attacker to dance, particularly if you don't know who your dancing partner is. Um, I think there's, I think there are use cases for this, but I think this is, I think hackback is something that is incredibly powerful and useful and necessary in the right hands. And those hands are very few, right? We're typically talking, military government, a small select number of security providers um, who have the right skill people with the right knowledge and the right intelligence, right? And that, that is a key part of this intelligence and knowing who you're interacting with when you choose to interact. Um, so I, I think that nuance is worth stating. The, the many degrees of separation between a, a simple honeypot, which someone opens and it does something and, you know, going that level. So, you know, the ethical discussions between there are numerous. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. Well put, Chris. And 
uh, I'm, I'm going to thank you all again. I mean, we I, I didn't know where this was going to go. I thought we were going to stick clearly on the program and, and, uh, but great conversation. And I think it, it ended up going a place that's really, really super important and driven by the work you're doing, Jordan, with your, uh, with your course and, and the work that Chris did in his book. So thank you both. And Will, uh, it's a pleasure meeting you and, and hearing your background, which is not in tech, but in, in uh, the human nature of things and clearly an area that uh, we need more of in cybersecurity uh, on all fronts. So uh, thanks for joining and sharing your thoughts with us today. And all three of you appreciate it. For those listening, there will be links to, for sure, Chris's book, uh, link to Jordan's program and uh, other, other things that the, the guests want to share you to help you learn more about honeypots and evidence-based research and, and uh, psychology of cybersecurity and anything and everything that uh, will help folks uh, absorb this conversation even more. So thank you all. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. iTrust is a leading data protection standards development and certification organization that strives to safeguard sensitive information and manage information risk for global organizations across all industries and throughout the third-party supply chain. Learn more at hightrustalliance.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.